pray. O glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we magnify your name. As you have said in your word, I am God, there is no other, a righteous God, a Savior. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. Who is like unto you, O Lord? There is none. Sovereign, perfect in every respect, eternal, creator, redeemer. So we magnify your name and we thank you that you inspired your word through your apostles and prophets. So teach us now by your Holy Spirit, the great one who anoints us, we ask in his precious name, amen. I don't know how many times that Jess has preached in the morning and uh, a message that I have in John or it was in Peter, it didn't matter where it was, it, was, it would always dovetail into it. And this, and this morning I thought, is he going to start talking about John 15 here? Because I was just ready for it. And, but it's going, to, it's, it's going to really dovetail very well here. We're in John 15. We're, lo- we're looking at uh, the last several weeks. We looked at John 15, uh, 1 through 8. Today we're going to take a look at John 15, verses 9 through 17. Now understand that uh, in this, in John 15, Jesus has given this great metaphor of the vine and the branches. And this was a, what he conveyed to his disciples on the night of the Last Supper. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. Chapters 15 through 17 considered the, uh, his discourse. And then uh, in chapter 17, he will pray and then they're on their way to arrest him. So Jesus made the point, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and unless you abide in me, you can't do anything. And he said, in fact, that the branch that doesn't bear fruit is worthless, it's dead. You cut off a dead branch, and you throw it away, and it's burned up. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you all are clean, except for one of you. And the scripture makes it very clear, he's referring to Judas Iscariot, who was the unclean one, who would go out and betray him, who, in his metaphor, did not bear the fruit. Now, Judas is that prime example of not abiding in the vine. Judas was unclean. Uh, According to Jesus in John 6, he said, you're a demon. He knew he was a demon and allowed him to come along. Why? Because... It was prophesied that a good friend would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And that's why he had Judas come. Judas will apostatize. Judas will prove that he was never genuinely converted. It's not that he was saved and lost his salvation. That cannot happen. He was never genuinely saved. So Judas is the prime example that Jesus gives of the worthless branch that's thrown away and burned up. Judas perished in his sins. Judas is in hell today because the scripture says when he hanged himself, he went to his own place. And so the other 11, Jesus says, my father prunes it so that you'll bear more fruit. And every genuine Christian, not just a professing Christian, 
every bona fide saved Christian will bear fruit of some magnitude. And what did Jesus say? Remember in the the parable of the sower and the seed? He says, the only soil that was the genuine Christian, as Jess has brought out when he preached through there, is the last soil that bears fruit. He said, now some fruit, Jesus says, will be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. But the point here is, it will bear some fruit. And so that's the main point that we have got to learn from this that Jesus wants to convey, and we should not miss it, because remember in in John 15, look at John 15, verse 8, what Jesus says. He says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We demonstrate that we are a fruitful... Uh, we, we demonstrate that we really belong to him, that we are attached and, and getting our life vital force from the vine when we bear fruit. But we will bear fruit. We will. And if we don't, then something is terribly wrong. I want us to take a look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, that it will elaborate on what Jesus is talking about. And, and James brings this out very well. So turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 and, and following. Now remember, Jesus said, Prove that you're my disciples by bearing much fruit. That's how the world will know you belong to me. All right, James addresses this. Look at verse 14, following. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I will demonstrate it. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, we say we believe in God and that's it. He says, well, you haven't done anything more than a demon does. They know who Jesus is. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish one, that without works, is use, faith without works is useless? Was not our Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So, in our text, in John 15, verse 9, Jesus is saying that, if you turn back to John 15, he says, I have loved my disciples to the end because he says my father has loved them my father has given them to to me and i have loved them to the end so we got to ask this question how did the father love the son now notice again verse 9 
just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in me. So Jesus has drawn this parallel, the love of the Father to, to the eternal Son, to what Jesus says, I've turned around and I've loved you in the same way my Father has loved me. Well, how did the Father love Jesus? That's an important question for us to ask. Well, to help understand that, if you just turn back to John 13, verse 1, it helps us out. John 13, 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his, that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his disciples. He loved his disciples to the end. He knows that his death is imminent. He says, but I've loved you uh, to the end. Now, everything that Jesus did in his three-year ministry on earth, he did for a purpose of, for one purpose, why the eternal son came into this world in the first place. Matthew one twenty one. when God revealed <clears throat> to Joseph that pregnant Mary was with child, he says this child that she's carrying that you know that you're not the father of, but the Holy Spirit is, is a special child and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The whole purpose of the incarnation and Jesus knew this All the time, I'm here for one goal, and that is to die for sinners, those whom God had elected from the foundation of the world. So Jesus always knew that he was going to have to sacrifice himself to save sinners. And you see, right there is the essence of biblical love. The sacrifice of oneself for others. That's the essence of biblical love. So how did the Father love the Son? Well, the Father loved the Son because he sent the Son as a mediator, a go-between between a holy God and sinful man. And <clears throat> well pleased, well, remember when, when Jesus was baptized by John, remember? The heavens were open, the Holy Spirit will come down, and God verbally spoke, says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why is he well pleased? Because Jesus always did the will of his Father. Always did the will of his Father. And because if you look at John 5, in fact, if you were to turn back to John 5, 19, notice what it says there, John 5, 19 Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So how did the Father love the Son? By sending the Son to die for sinners, for a people whom God the Father had chose before the foundation of the world, the elect. 
And so, as we were going to see, this obedience to the Father, and subsequently, the Son is what God expects of all Christians. Now, the Father loved the Son in giving up the Son for sinners. That's how the Father loved the Son, because he used him as the mediator. Remember what, um, we've looked at this passage numerous times in 1 John 4, verse 10, where it says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, propitiation is that biblical term means a satisfaction of divine justice or wrath by means of a bloody sacrifice. That's what propitiation means. The father loved the son, and that's how he loved the son, to use him in a special way. And that is how Jesus loved us. So we're going to see that this obedience to the father and subsequently to the son is what Jesus expects all of us to do. Now, let me just mention, in fact, you could quote, turn over, because it's a great passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. We're talking about how the Father loved the Son and then how the Son loved his disciples, of whom we are, of course. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 says, talking about the Messiah to come, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, it may seem odd that the father's loved love for the son entailed sending the son to go to the cross. But without Jesus going to the cross, where would we be? In hell. That's where we'd be. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, we would be in eternal hell forever. Peter says, for he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might die to sin, live unto righteousness, by whose wounds We were healed. And so what we see is because of the son's sacrifice of himself, the son will see his seed. Well, who's that? That's us. That's, That's who that seed is. We are that seed. And the son will see that seed when he will do what the father Ask him to do, to die for sinners. 
So what we see here in, in John 15, if you turn back to John 15, verse 10, we see Jesus' exhortation to us of how we should love him. Now notice what he says, that exhortation of Jesus in John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what's the proof? What's the proof to Jesus that we love him? We obey his commandments. Just like he obeyed his father's commandments. Then we obey his commandments. And what is his commandments? That we should love one another, as we're going to see. That's where I thought Jess was going to start preaching out of John 15 on me all of a sudden. And so what we see here, this abiding in the vine, that is obedience to Jesus' commandments. Jesus said, by keeping his commandments, you are going to abide in my love just as I obeyed my father by keeping his commandments. So look at what John fifteen eleven says. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That my joy may be in you in abundance. Well, that's a, that's a great passage, isn't it? How, who is it among us that doesn't want to have that kind of joy, right? Of course we want to have that kind of joy. Or, or would we prefer to live in sorrow? Now, which do you want? <laughs> like the disciples who were, they were grieved when Jesus said, I'm, I'm leaving you. That really bothered them. We, we know from the text that that really bothered them. And, and they said, can we come with you? And he says, well, not yet. You will eventually, but not yet. And so Jesus is going to comfort them. And he's comforting them. He says, they got grief. He says, but they have grief, but I'm going to give you a joy, a special kind of joy. Well, how do we get this kind of joy that Jesus is talking about? An abundance type of joy by keeping his commandments. That's how we get it. You've probably read through Psalm 119, haven't you? Just go back there and read how much the psalmist says, oh, how I love you, how I treasure you. Your, your, your law is like a honeycomb to me. You see, he says, I have joy. And just look up how many times joy is mentioned in Psalm 119 and how it's related to keeping the commandments of God. So we keep the commandments particularly by imitating towards one another the love of others in the same way Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love us? He sacrificed for us. That's how he loved us. And that's how we're to love one another, by sacrificing for one another. Jesus died. Now, we can't, well, it's, it's going to be interesting um, what Jesus says down here further. But <clears throat> if you and I are going to have this abundance of joy that Jesus says, I'm going to give to you, you do so by obeying his commandments. 
I remember the impact that that verse had on me as a college student, as a Christian college student, because I wanted to have joy. And I wanted that in my life. And when you understand that relationship, then I need to be obedient to the word of God. Whatever it says, that, that, that's how I'm going to get that joy. That's how we get that joy. So here's the thing. When you and I give of ourselves to other people, when we sacrifice, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, when we sacrifice for others, that's when we're the happiest. That's when we're the most joyful. I don't know. Um, have you? Exp- I, I can't go into your heart, but have you experienced that? When you've been obedient to the Lord and, and, and helping others, isn't there a joy in your life? Well, yeah. Well, that's the way God meant it to be. See, God designed us. He knows how we tick. He knows what will make us happy. He knows what will be joyful. He says, I'm, I'm going to tell you how to do it. This is how you do it. You want that joy? Then you need to learn to love people the way I loved them. By sacrificing for others. Turn to uh, Philippians 2. Look at verses 15 through 18. That you may prove yourselves, I'm just picking right up in the middle of verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. You remember Paul in Philippians 1 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I would prefer to go on and be with Jesus, which is far greater but for me to remain on for a while is greater benefit for you. So for your sake, I'm going to remain a little bit longer until God decides to take me. And, and Paul says, my joy is in my pouring out of my life as a drink offering, which the apostle Paul did for the sake of other people. I mean, he gave his life uh, eventually, literally, for the sake of bringing the truth of God to all these people, especially the Gentile world. And so what we see here, Jesus says, turn back to John 15 now. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now that's pretty straightforward Jesus commanded us to love one another just as I loved you. He's saying, do you get the point? 
I'm telling you how to love me and how to love others. And then he says it even more straightforward in verse 13. He elaborates on this. Notice what he says. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What did Jesus do for us? Remember, he he says, well, he's going to go on and tell us we're no longer slaves, but we're friends. And he says, I lay down my life for my friends. So how are you going to... There is no greater love that you can do, Jesus says, as my disciples, than for you to imitate me. And just as I sacrifice for other people, that's how you're to love them. You sacrifice yourself for others. There is no greater love than for you to serve others and, if necessary, to die on their behalf. What is the greatest commandment? Well, Jess said it summarized. He he shared Galatians 5, shared Romans 13. The whole law, the entirety of the law can be summarized in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what Jesus has been saying. And so, Yes, we can't be like Jesus and die as an atonement for sin because only, only God can do that. But on a lesser sense, we are to lay down our lives for one another by putting their interests ahead of our own. In other words, uh, what Jesus is stressing and commanding is this, self-sacrificing love. That's what he's commanding. This is the proof you're my disciple. John 15, 8. You want to prove that you're my disciple? Lay down your life for one another and you will prove to be my disciple. And so there's there's the great goal. There's what we're to achieve for. That's why you and I need to work on humility of mind because it's not easy, is it, to sacrifice for other people because that requires effort. That requires maybe being, it may be inconvenient, is it not, to sacrifice for others, but that's what he expects. Remember, it's Matthew records this in his account of the Last Supper. Remember, there was an argument that broke out. I I still cannot fathom how this argument broke out among the disciples at the Last Supper. Remember, they got an argument as who's the greatest among themselves. (laughs) And Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you something. Okay, it's okay to be great, but I'm going to tell you how you're going to be great. Not by saying, well, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. No, it's by sacrificing for others. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the son gave his life as a ransom for many. He says, you want to be great? Then you need to be a servant of others. And that's how you prove you're my disciple. Prove it by the fruit of love. That's how you prove it. Turn with me over to uh, 1 John chapter 3. 
as you read through 1 John, you're going to see there's so close a parallel between his epistles and his gospel account, which, of course, it would not, should not surprise you since he's the author of both. <clears throat> but the, the themes in 1 John are the themes that we've been talking about here in, in, in John 15. I want you to pick up here on 1 John 3, starting at verse 14. Now, before I read that passage and you follow with me, remember what Jesus said in John 15, 8. You will prove you're my disciples if you bear much fruit. Well, what kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, here it, here it comes. 1 John 3, 14 and following. <clears throat> we know that we have passed out of death into life How do we know that? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I mean, that's exactly what he's been saying in John 15. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, he says, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, And love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So let me ask you this. How how can you and I do what Jesus commands us to do? How can you and I sacrifice on the level that Jesus says we ought to do for one another. Well, it's sure not going to be power within ourselves, is it? Even as Christians, we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power to obey Jesus. And when we see a need, then we, we meet it. You see, when we meet the needs of others, when there is a, a knowing need, and, and by the way, in 1 John 3, <clears throat> the grammar conveys this in a very special way. Behold, if you see your, your brother in need. That word behold means, here's what it means in the context. It means to meditate upon, to carefully consider. In other words, there is no question that there's a need. It's a given, and you know it. And once you know it, 
then you and I are under obligation to meet that need. To sacrifice for other people to help meet that need in their life. Why? Because we care. Jesus cared for us and we're to care for others the same way. And we care for others by meeting their needs when it arises. And is this not what James 2 says that we've already looked at? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, James says, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? He says, that's not faith. That's not saving faith. You're not any better than the demons. You demonstrate you belong to me by bearing fruit. And bearing fruit means when you see a need in other people, you meet that need. Now, is this not the reason why some are going to enter glory on the last day of judgment and others are going to be cast into hell? And Jess has already preached on Matthew 25, but do you remember what the essence of that is? And we gotta, we got to be careful with Matthew 25 because remember he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And it's interesting what the separation is. To the sheep, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you came and you came and visited me. And what did the goats do? They didn't do any of this. They didn't do any of this. Now, on Judgment Day, now some have misconstrued, like the Federal Vision. They they have really blown it big time when it comes to Matthew twenty four twenty five, because they think, well, that's persevering faithfulness. That's Final justification. Remember, we mentioned last week, there's only one kind of justification. It's not initial and final. No, there's only one justification. But the scripture is very clear, just like James has been very clear. And Jesus is very clear about himself and the vine. When you bear fruit, you prove that you belong to me. And the fruit, what, what, what does uh, Galatians 5 say is the, the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. And so that's how we prove it. And so on the judgment day, here's what's going to happen. We're only going to be saved by the right being clothed with Jesus' righteousness. But the scripture has always said, if you are justified, and here's sanctification, the scripture makes this distinction in our confession of faith makes this distinction. But they said, but there is a close union between the two so that if you are justified, guess what? You will bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100, but you will bear fruit. You will prove to be my disciples, as Jesus said. And so what we see here, uh, <clears throat> In verse um, 
14, back in, in John 15. You're my, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That, that's interesting. Often he says, you're my friend if you do what I, what I say. Now, think about friends for a moment. They're special, aren't they? You've, you've got your friends, and you're probably closer to some than others, and you call them, that's my friend. And you may have a, a best friend. So what do you do with your best friend? Well, in one way, you confide in them, right? They're, they're willing to listen to you. So you, you tell them your, your joys, you tell them your sorrows, and they listen to you, and... If they're really your friend, they'll tell you the truth at times. And sometimes your friend may have to tell you something you may not like to hear. But that's not the, in fact, that's what the proverb says. A friend will love you at all times. In other words, if you need to be rebuked, then if you have a really good friend, then your good friend may say, well, I, I need to tell you something. You're way off thing. Because I love you, I'm telling you this. That's what a real friend does. So, another thing here is, he says, uh, when we sacrifice for others, when we become servants to others, then Jesus says, you know what? You're my friend. <laughs> you're, I can call you my friend because you're doing what I tell you. And, and then he says, look at verse 15, He says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, here's the thing. The Bible just talks about that we are slaves of Christ. But here Jesus is making the point I'm going to call you a friend and not a slave because here's the thing. Think of the master-slave relationship. Is the master obligated to tell the slave any, everything? Oh, no. He doesn't, he doesn't have any. He, there's no obligation of the master telling the slave the reasons why the master is doing something. He doesn't have that relationship. Jesus says, look, I'm no longer calling you slaves. I'm calling you a friend. And what does a friend do? A friend confides in you. And guess what I'm doing, Jesus said for you. Everything the Father has told me, you know what? I'm telling you. Oh, you're in the the inner circle now. I'm telling you everything the Father said. Why? Because you are my friend. And that's what a friend will do. It will tell you the truth in, in things. In other words, Jesus is saying, in that respect, we are on equal footing. And in that sense, now, we're, we're not, Jesus is still the Lord and he's still the master. But it explains The reason Jesus says that, and you may have wondered when you read this passage, look at verse 16 of John 15. Immediately Jesus says, 
talking about you're a friend no longer. Uh, I speak to you as a friend, not as a slave. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and, guess what? Bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain and whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now on earth, when we have friends, we choose to be each other's friends, right? I, I, I've chosen to be your friend. You've chosen to be my friend. That's something we, you, we engage in, okay? It's a mutual choosing. That's an earthly friendship. But that's not the case with Jesus and his disciples. In other words, Jesus didn't say, didn't, Jesus didn't choose me, as some would say, because he wanted me on God's team, you know? No, he chose us when we may have hated him, when we were walking in darkness. It could have been your own testimony. We were going one direction, and then he meets us. And God's choice of us is not because he saw something good in us. What did he see in us? Filthy Rags, that's what he saw in us. Sinners who hated him. We didn't want to have anything to do with him until we didn't have anything to do with him until, as Jesus told Nicodemus, remember? Nicodemus, it's like the wind. You got to be born again, Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it goes, but you see the effect of it. You see the effect. And what did Ezekiel 36 that we've looked at before says? When God regenerates us, changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, then what was the result? The result will be that you will walk in my statutes. You will love my commandments. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, we choose to follow Jesus because he did a marvelous work in us. So God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. He gave to us Jesus as our Redeemer. And it's the Holy Spirit who drew us to Jesus, just like Jesus said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise up at the last day. Now, maybe I will raise him up. So election is one-sided. In our election, we did nothing. What's that called? It's called grace is what, what's that called. We did not cooperate with God in that regard. Now, this sovereign love of God is especially seen in God's choosing of Israel as a nation in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. I'll just read the text for us. Jehovah did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of the peoples. But because Jehovah loves you, he has brought you out with a mighty hand. You know, Jazz talked about the law and the gospel this morning and that with sinners, we, we 
the law condemns us, as Paul says, it drives us to Christ to find what? Mercy. And how is that mercy shown? Well, one of the great passages in the New Testament is Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the context there is, rarely would someone die for a reprobate, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He died for us as reprobates and brought us as sinners. You see, the, here's the ultimate goal of election. Jesus says in in verse 16, I chose you and I appointed you to go out and bear fruit. That's what I, that's the purpose of my election, of the Father's election. Now we all like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's a great passage. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. But we need to combine verse 10 there, because verse 10 follows right up. Here's what verse 10 says of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has both before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, our sovereign election finds its culmination in you and I bearing fruit. That's exactly what Jesus has been saying in John 15. What does Matthew 5, 16 say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, we're not saved by the good works, but we demonstrate, just like Jesus says, you will prove you're my disciples if you bear fruit. James says you will prove you've got saving faith if you bear fruit. So Jesus appointed us to go out and bear fruit Jesus says our fruit remains and whatever we ask of the Father in his name, he will give us. Now that's kind of an open-ended promise, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the incredible promises in all the word of God. Whatever you ask in my name, he says, I'm going to give it to you. Well, I, I conclude with this then. You want to have power in prayer? I would hope so. You ready for this? Then pray for God to manifest fruit in your life. That is what Jesus just said. You see, that promise is in the context of bearing fruit. You pray for the greatest fruit of all, love. You know what? I'm going to tell you, here's a prayer that God will, I guarantee you by the authority of the word of God, here's a prayer that God will answer in your life. If you pray, Lord, I need to be more loving. 
I need to love people by sacrificing myself for them. I need to be a servant of people, Lord. I guarantee you, God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. Now, I want you to pray that. I pray that. I want you to pray that prayer. But I want you to get ready. (laughs) I want you to get ready what he may require you to do to sacrifice for other people. But if that is a sincere prayer of your heart, he will answer it. And he, here's the magnificent thing. You're going to learn, you're going to bear much fruit. If that's what you're praying for, you will bear much fruit. And you will bear fruit of the magnitude that you may not know until the day of judgment, just how magnificent how the Lord used you in other people's lives when you pray that kind of prayer. But Jesus says, um, you pray that prayer, and it says, and he ends it by saying, this I command you, that you love one another. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to have that fruit. Well, that's how you do it. Love one another. That's the fruit. And you're going to see God do amazing things in your life. And you'll hear Jesus say to you face to face one day. I'm going to pick on Iris then. Iris then, Jesus will look in your face and say, well done, Iris then, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, how wonderful it is. Lord, here's the challenge before us. Help us to keep it. Help us to bear that fruit for the glory of Jesus. Amen.